I feel very privileged indeed to be spending the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show speaking with Dr. Roger S. Gottlieb, a professor of philosophy at Worcester Polytechnic Institute and the author of a very important new book called Morality and the Environmental Crisis. In this book, uh, Professor Gottlieb is calling us to look at our planet, at all around us, and our role in its degradation, and to think about ways in which we can live in greater harmony with our planet, with the living things with which we share this planet, and uh, how we can view all of this within uh, or through the prism of morality and and ethics. And uh, this is a book that uh, hits us hard in the sense that it does not shy away from the grimmest uh, aspects of uh, the crisis that confronts us on so many different sides. But uh, beyond just trying to frighten us uh, with uh, some of the, uh, the d- dire predictions of what might lie ahead for us, uh, it also calls us to try to rise above this crisis in which we've had such a direct hand and finding ways both as individuals and uh, collectively as a society to uh, confront some of these most frightening uh, possibilities. Uh, It is a thoroughly written book, and uh, I appreciate this possibility to talk with its author. The book published by Cambridge University Press, again titled Morality and the Environmental Crisis. And uh, Professor Roger Gottlieb, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you very much. Before we start talking about your book, could you just say a word about Worcester Polytechnic Institute? What kind well, of a school are we talking it's about? Wor- it, it's pronounced Worcester. Uh, oh, Worcester sorry. Polytechnic Institute. It's, <clears throat> it's a solid, well-respected, 150-year-old engineering university. Uh, most of the students are engineers, some scientists, a lot of in computers, and, but also some uh, in biology, pre-med, that sort of thing. And what is it that you teach there? I teach philosophy with, uh, and I dabble in religious studies, so that uh, the students are uh, required to do some serious work in the humanities before they can get their degree. Wow. I wonder what sort of a fit is it, I mean, for, for the students who are drawn to, to attend there and with, the, in, with a, an interest in engineering, does it, in a sense, come as a surprise to them that philosophy uh, I, I will think... figure into their preparation? Well, they have a choice among the different humanities, but they have to concentrate in one, and philosophy and religion is one of the ones in which they can concentrate. You know, if you take young people seriously as moral beings, as political beings, and as spiritual beings, many of them, not all, uh, many of them will respond. Uh, You have to raise issues in a way that's comprehensible to them. They don't come with any background in philosophy. They're not going to be professional philosophers. But there are many common everyday experiences which raise philosophical questions and if you can raise those directly to them <clears throat> excuse me then they respond you tell us that there are a whole lot of books and uh, we all know that all kinds of books that are being written about the environmental crisis or one aspect or another of it and uh, uh, but you clearly felt the need uh, to write this particular book I think in part because it examines this uh, from, a, from a different perspective than we often see in such books. I think the problem is that, <clears throat> sorry, a little something in my throat today, uh, 
most books on ethics, and there are many very good books on environmental ethics that have been written, but books on ethics tend to presuppose that we can do what's right, and they spend a great deal of effort trying to convince us what the right thing is. Now, my book starts with the presupposition that it's really doubtful whether or not we can do the right thing, that the environmental crisis is such a deep reflection of virtually all parts of our civilization that it's questionable whether or not we have the resources. So I raise this as the underlying question throughout. What is it that we think we should be doing? Can we even begin to understand what we should be doing when our cultural resources, religion and philosophy, politics and economics, even everyday behavior, has led us to the brink of disaster? And I would just, you know, sort of note that in your introduction, you talked about dire predictions. There are dire predictions in the book, but the environmental crisis is underway right this very minute. It's already happened. It's already happening. The UN estimates there are five to 10 million uh, environmental refugees every single year. You know, ask the people in California about the wildfires, ask the people in the Midwest now about the floods, ask the people on the East Coast about the hurricanes. If you go to the top of Mount Everest and you melted the snow there, it would be too polluted to be safe to drink. That's the top of Mount Everest. If you go three miles under the surface of the ocean, you find furniture chemicals in the body of giant squid. We have written our civilization on the body of the planet, and we've written it inside our own bodies as well, because the average newborn in the United States is born with 100 toxic chemicals in his bloodstream. One of the things that concerns you is not just what you were just spelling out now or briefly summarizing, but... Uh, on sort of our end of this uh, equation, if you will, is what you call a general widespread moral malaise that you say afflicts in varying degrees all of us, whether we realize it or not. I think it's important. Consider uh, a serious, intelligent 12-year-old child who belongs to some kind of religious, uh, you know, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, whatever, Now, there's one thing that all these religions have in common, and I mean every religion that ever existed, and that's they they pass themselves off as moral experts. When they educate the children, they tell the children, we know what's right, do what we tell you. And so what if the 12-year-old stood up one day and said, hey, if you know what's right, how have you let this happen? Now, I think it's it's a one feature of the moral malaise is that young people know somewhere in their bones that the older people, the people in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, and even the old geezers like me, we have done something. We have made tremendous mistakes here. And some of us are waking up and some of us are struggling about it. But in general, the world's civilizations, from Russia to the United States to Brazil to Kenya, are continuing in the devastation. And so if you have young people growing up with no moral respect for the adult world, that's a moral problem. You, uh, in particular, spell out what you say is uh, such, a, uh, such a terrible combination between what you call breathtaking technological competence with a fundamental and sweeping irrationality. And yeah. what a scary combination that is. Uh, in what way do you see that playing out? Well, you know, we can do incredible things with technology. Uh, consider the Internet. Right. And I'm old enough to remember a time when there wasn't any Internet. Um, 
first computer I used was so heavy we had to roll it around the department and used eight-inch disks, and you couldn't move the cursor off the bottom line. You just had to scroll the text up and down. So I've seen the whole computer thing unfold during my adult life. And now you see how much of the Internet is used for dishonesty, for corruption, for a sort of mob psychology of attack and death threats, for distortions, for political manipulations. It's crazy. And it's crazy because we've given this enormously powerful tool to a general human population that's morally extremely undeveloped. I mean, I suggest to my students, and because they're technology folks, they think I'm crazy, but let's not develop any new technology for the next 10 years. Not a single thing, not a new phone, not a new car, not nothing. And let's spend 10 years working on emotional intelligence, learning to deal with, deal with our feelings, learning to talk to people who disagree with us, learning to modify our desires, learning to live lives characterized by some kind of acceptance and gratitude and compassion. And then let's see where we want to go. But, of course, we're not going to do that. We're going to be hell-bent for leather to develop all the new technology and sell it, sell it, sell it. 4G wasn't good enough. Now we have to have 5G. How can you imagine living without a 5G phone network? Well, that's just crazy. So there's a sweeping irrationality. Now, some of this has to do with profit and power, but some of it just has to do with craziness. The people in power who supposedly love their children and grandchildren are creating a world that's going to be enormously difficult for their grandchildren, even though their grandchildren might be very rich and live in sort of gated communities. You can't gate a community against the disruption of an entire civilization. It, the gate will fall. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is how, even though some of what you are spelling out feels very new, I mean, some of these technological break, breakthroughs that are are quite recent developments, but uh, and and even something like the Industrial Revolution is relatively recent in the whole uh, scope of human history. That in some ways our fundamental attitudes are are nothing new at all. And you you talk in in the very first chapter of the book about how much of Western uh, religious thought and even secular philosophy has been built around. Uh, the sense of wise use that at a glance might seem fine, but you clearly see some real problems there and some direct connection with where we find ourselves now. Well, the use wasn't very wise. That's the problem. You can go back to the prophet Isaiah, who cautioned against people who, quote, build house to house, join field to field until there's room for no one but you. So it sounds like suburban sprawl 2,300 years ago. Uh, look, the, the original teachings on the human relationship to nature, if you go back to uh, biblical teachings, they're very mixed. There's the dominion claim, you know, God will give human beings dominion over everything. There are also limits to what we should do. It's a mix. The point is not what's in the original teachings, but what was taken from the original teachings. And generally, what was taken from the original teachings was we can do what we want, because really, ultimately, only human beings matter. Right. You write, virtually all of what are considered to be the major philosophers in the, tra- in the tradition presumed, typically without justification, that nature existed for human use. Yes. So that's why when we talk about even something like wise use, which seems like a good thing, a sensible thing, but at its root is, is this idea that, that nature is, is put here for us to use, and, yes. uh, and use is something that can be done wisely or unwisely or some mix of the two. Right, and that's, that's part of what's interesting morally. 
in what degree or in what sense can we say that nature has moral value? Now, if you step back, it's, this is a, certainly a question we can ask about human beings. In what sense and to what degree do human beings have moral value? In a world where 30 to 40,000 children die every day of needless starvation, you can wonder, you know, how much moral value we accord to anybody. But in general, we've sort of agreed for a variety of different reasons that people have moral value, that you can't go out and just kill somebody without offering a justification. And the killers, whether it's the United States operating drones or some uh, Islamic fanatic blowing up something, they, they offer reasons. But who offers reasons why you killed a mosquito or pulled a weed or cut down a tree? And part of what I'm suggesting in the book is that on reflection, we're learning that if we don't take our moral relationships with nature seriously, we end up with what we have now. We end up with the crisis. And then there are, as I sketch in the book, a variety of paths to an environmental ethic, whether it's through gratitude towards what nature has given us, whether it's the awe for the complexity, the beauty and independence of nature, whether there's the sense of the way nature cares for us, whether there's just a sense of appreciation that as we've learned that people of a different skin color or a different religion or a different uh, sexual orientation, that they are all deserving of respect and care. So everything that lives is deserving of, deserving of respect and care. Now, I don't want to go into this in terms of talking about the rights of nature, because I don't think the concept of rights really works. We have to use nature. We have to displace it. We have to consume it. Even if we became vegans, all of us overnight, we'd still be pulling up the weeds in our fields. And that reflects back on us. What is our moral task, then, is to develop ourselves as a culture, as a civilization, as individuals who can live with restraint, with appreciation, with gratitude, with a certain calmness, instead of the desperate, hysterical acquisition, acquisitive mentality that is in, uh, in, encouraged in us now. We're speaking with Roger S. Gottlieb about his book, Morality and the Environmental Crisis. I intended at the right at the outset to to give you an opportunity to spell out for us uh, how you are using the term and and in general how people in your field of philosophy use the term morality. Well, morality is we might say a dimension of human existence, and you might contrast it to the aesthetic, which is just about beauty or the practical, which is just about getting what you want. Morality is about a certain set of <clears throat> guides or norms, in some cases rules, for human behavior. And to say that something is a moral rule or a moral claim or a moral value is to say, among other things, that it takes precedence over other types of things, that even though it would be useful to me to knock you over the head and take your wallet, Morally, it's wrong. So I follow the moral rule and not the practical desire. Morally, we have a set of imperatives that guide us in our relationships with other, other people, certainly, and hopefully, if you read the book and get the point, with other beings who live on this planet who are not people. Morality is something which tells you what to do, and you can tell, uh, you, you know if you're taking it seriously, because when you fail, and all of us fail sometimes, you feel bad about it. And you feel bad about it in a particular kind of way, not the same way in which you sort of you took the wrong turn when you were driving, you feel bad. But if you do something morally wrong, you feel bad in a different kind of way. So whatever the particular moral values are that people have, morality is a dimension of all forms of human existence, except for the, you know, the small number of psychopaths among us, some of whom might have been elected into high political office. 
And I think you're talking about the way morality plays out not only for each of us individually in the choices that we make, but collectively the choices we make uh, as a society or or the, the choices that industries end up making that impact all of us. I mean, morality can play out on, on, on a lot of different sizes of canvas, in a sense. Well, we, you know, morality is a personal issue for all of us, but it's not an individual issue in the sense that, for the most part, uh, people accept one of or some combination of a comparatively small range of moral perspectives that exist in a given culture at a given time. You don't. You have 360 million Americans. <clears throat> you don't have 360 di- million different moralities. And the, the question then is: Are we now in a situation where it's hard or sometimes practically impossible to do the right thing? Because we want to do the right thing. Everybody wants to believe that they're a good person. You know, uh, the terrorist believes that he's doing the right thing. The aggressive imperialist believes that he's doing the right thing. Everybody believes that they're doing the right thing. They have a justification that it's okay for them. But if I get into my car to drive, I live in Boston, to drive to Worcester, where I work, which is almost an hour away, uh, you know, every time I do that, I contribute to greenhouse gases. And that contributes to global warming. And that means that the storms in Bangladesh, which is a poor, low-lying country, the ravaging storms there kill thousands upon thousands of people. So my very daily activity contributes to this. Take another example. If you, you know, you've had a hard day at work or if you're a university student at, at courses and you come home and you grab a beer, a cup of coffee or something, and you sit down, you want to just sort of relax and do nothing, and you turn on the TV, right? Everybody's done that. Except nobody's done that. It's impossible because the television is already on. If it wasn't already on, if it wasn't already drawing power from the grid, it wouldn't respond to the remote control. And if you look around your house, you see phone chargers that are plugged in, TVs, DVD players, uh, microwaves, computers. All these things, even in their, quote, off mode, are drawing power. Which This is called phantom or standby power. Now, each particular appliance that does this, it's a very, very vanishingly small amount. Put them all together, and it's been estimated to be 5 to 10% of home energy use in this country, which is an awful lot of energy, an awful lot of greenhouse gases. It's more than Greece and Vietnam total put out in terms of greenhouse gases. But who knows about this? Most of my students had, didn't know about it, and they're engineers. Nobody said before all this stuff was invented and developed and set up, nobody said, hey, should we be doing this? Let's think about this. Let's put it to a vote. No, we just did it. And now our daily lives, our common sense of what's comfortable, what's useful, what we're used to, all this is wrapped up in environmentally destructive behavior. Right. And, of course, uh, you talk in the book more than once about uh, what we have is essentially an addiction to ease, E-A-S-E, and that uh, when that becomes... Uh, something that we come to expect and and in ever increasing amounts and uh, throughout every aspect of our lives, there is a cost to that, often a hidden cost, but a cost that is uh, absolutely real and uh, and perhaps increasingly costly as, costly as time goes on. Yes, the addiction to ease, and it really is an addiction, <clears throat> functions like any other addiction. Whereas the future sort of disappears and everything contracts into the next moment. You know, the heroin addict somehow knows that this is not a good idea, but the future disappears and all he or she can see is the next shot. So 
we have these very comfortable, useful, not tremendously expensive microfiber garments, right? Great stuff for work for athletics, working out, workout gear, and so forth. And yet, when you put them in the washing machine, the abrasions break them down in very very small ways. So tiny, microscopic amounts of fibers come off, and they go into the water, and the water goes into the drain, and the drain goes into the ocean eventually, and it goes into the fish who are becoming clogged with these things. And when you eat a wild-caught fish from the ocean, you're eating plastic, which is essentially what microfiber is. So, again, there's this lack of sense of, oh, things have consequences. What's the long-term effect of this going to be, even you know, 20 years? I mean, in the oceans now, they estimate that in a couple of decades, there'll be more plastic than fish. Right? right now, there's this huge thing called the Pacific Garbage Patch, which is a soup or stew of plastic, uh, sometimes on the surface, sometimes as much as 100 feet down, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And the Pacific Garbage Patch, when it was first noticed, it was thought to be as big as, gasp, Texas. At later estimates put it as big as the United States. A soup or stew of plastic junk in the Pacific. And plastic is very convenient. It's a lot lighter than metal. It lasts a long time. You can carry fluids in it. You can wrap packages in it. But then what? Then what do you do with the plastic? Well, you just drop it everywhere or you burn it and then the toxic particles go in the air. Well, maybe plastic's not such a good idea. But can we stop and think? If you can't stop and think, you can't be moral because moral requires thought. In this part of the book that you uh, explored some of what you've just now been talking about, such as our addiction to ease, uh, you, you, you spell out some other ways in which we find ourselves sort of emotionally and intellectually at this place and with, with some of these uh, attitudes. Uh, you, you spell them out as ways in which a typical person, even one concerned with environmental matters, may find that basic features of his or her personality and character are complicit in the environmental crisis. And the first one I thought was especially interesting, and that is the importance that so many of us place on our work. Explain how this figures into uh, the, 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 the poor choices that we individually and collectively make uh, when it comes to matters of the environment. Right, well, if you think of what human life is now like in the United States, you find that Compared to earlier ages, community is much less important. Religion is much less important. Family is much less important. Uh, we grow up with a tremendous stress on individuality. And then if we ask ourselves, well, what gives my life meaning then? Well, one of the major things, and some, for some people, the major thing is work. You know, you meet somebody at a bar and you want to pick them up. You don't say, what religion are you? Or tell me about your mother. You say, what what do you do? What work do you do? Who are you? You're your work. Now, in an environmentally destructive civilization where some of the major dominant social forces, corporations and the government, are engaged in destructive activity, well, if you get a job with them, then to speak up, to question, to leave if it's destructive, you lose your work. You lose your identity. So you think of uh, Volkswagen, right? They developed uh, this incredibly sophisticated technology and the car knew when it was being tested for emissions, and it would put out a certain number, and knew when it was driving, and it would be put out five to ten times as much. It was a total fraud, a cheating on the emissions test. 
Now, if you think of how complicated that machine must have been, that computer program and how they set it up in the automobile, you get up in the morning and you say, well, my job today is to make a phony, fraudulent car that's that's able to to emit uh, many more toxic uh, fumes than it tests us. That's your job. Think of the public relations firm hired by Exxon. They were given 10 to $15 million to cast doubt on global warming, even when Exxon totally knew that global warming was coming because they'd already warned their facilities around the world to strengthen themselves and be prepared for bigger storms and higher uh, oceans. So there you get up in the morning, and your job is to tell lies about global warming. Why would you do that? Is it, do you hate the earth? <laughs> no, you do it because it's a job, and your identity is bound up with your work. And you write, for, 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 for many, the system seems inescapable because it is the source of their job. And, yeah. uh, and to let go of it is to let go of even more than a job. It's also letting go of who you are and your sense of identity and so on. But you also say that one of the things that is at play here is uh, what uh, I think you almost describe as kind of a wide dispersal of moral responsibility that that in many cases we are uh, a small cog in a really big machine and that often we don't even see or begin to understand kind of the scope of what's being done and our part in it. Uh, well, it's, it, what, what I, what I, the way I developed the concept is the distinction between guilt and responsibility. I think we're all uh, of us above a certain level of poverty. Uh, we're all responsible, and that certainly includes myself, um, and on the other hand, there are the people like the Rex Tillersons, who, who ran Exxon and who hired the public relations firm to cast out on it. There are a small number of enorm- immensely powerful people uh, who have much greater effect on what's going on. These people are guilty. Uh, if you think of the Koch brothers, who sp- spent millions upon millions of dollars reshaping the Republican Party into the party which denies climate change. And they did that before the Koch brothers campaign. The Republicans were, you know, kind of in a moderate kind of way and in a kind of free market kind of way. At least they acknowledged that global warming was real. Climate change was real. And with the application of probably a couple hundred million dollars by the Koch brothers, they don't do that anymore. Now, that that kind of concentrated power confers on them a kind of deep guilt, which to my mind is, you know, a kind of crime against humanity when you calculate the number of deaths amount of property losses, money losses that climate change is uh, causing even now. And you realize that all the money that's lost on that is not going to education, to health care, to care for the disabled or care for the elderly. You see what I mean, the seriousness of what they've done. On the other hand, those of us who don't have that kind of social power, and that's certainly me, (laughs) uh, I'm lucky if I know when to walk the dog, uh, those of us, we can ask ourselves, people say, well, I'm doing the best I can. Are you? How do you know you're doing the best you can? Do, have you, for instance, now that you know that certain people have told you that there's something immoral about the way animals are treated, have you looked at that? Have you taken 10 minutes to turn on your computer and Google animal rights and see what comes up or conditions in slaughterhouses and see what comes up? Have you looked at how much you drive and find some way you could cut back? If you say, I can't possibly do any better, maybe you can't. People can only do what they can do. But it's not always clear that you can't do anymore. Sometimes that's just a blanket excuse. And I think it's 
everybody has an obligation now, again, above a certain level of poverty and deprivation, but everybody else has an obligation to take some of that time they spend watching television or screwing around on the Internet or, you know, wasting time in other ways, and to get some more information, to know what's going on, to ask themselves, this candidate who wants my vote, where does he stand on the Green New Deal? Uh, this candidate, what do they say about the way animals are treated? And so forth and so on. Ask these questions, get this information, and then ask yourself, can I really not do a single bit more? Well, I bet you can. Mm. Of course, at the root of so much of this is what you call, uh, at least in general, our estrangement from the very nature that we are assaulting. And I think... uh, I think most of us are are very much aware of this on some vague level, but I suspect that this, what you call estrangement from nature, uh, occurs in all kinds of different ways that we're really not at all aware of. How would you yes, describe and, this estrangement? Well, I, I would just say the significance of it is that it's knowledge of and acquaintance of the natural world, which is probably the best uh, motivator to, you know, environmental involvement, both on an individual and in terms of a political level. I mean, you make the analogy with the, the biggest predictor of whether or not somebody supports gay marriage is whether or not they know somebody in their family or a close friend or a colleague at work who came out as a gay person. That was the predictor. They knew somebody. And if you have a real acquaintance with the natural world, then the prospect of its destruction, of its elimination, of its poisoning is really horrible. But we turn nature into something that we use as some kind of spectacle, right? There are all these car ads for people driving down isolated roads with gorgeous mountain scenery uh, all around. Well, you know, probably nobody's going to take that drive. Or if they do take the drive, they're probably not going to get out of the car except to stop and take a picture and get back in. That's not an acquaintance with nature. That's just flattening out nature to some kind of Disney movie. But if we could, again, step out of the house and find one tree and just Sit with that tree 10 to, 15 minute, 10 to 15 minutes a day, three or four times a week. See what happens. See what happens. And you'd be amazed what happens. I do this. This is an assignment I give my students. They have to do it. and They have to keep a record of the experience. And I say, you can write anything in this journal. You can write Gottlieb is an idiot. And this is the stupidest assignment I've ever had. I don't care what you write. I say, the only thing you have to do to pass the assignment is to write legibly so I can read it. And these hard hard knock, uh, you know, tough engineers. I mean, this is not, uh, I'm not teaching at Oberlin, you know, these aren't a bunch of liberal arts types. These are the hard edge kids. After two weeks, they're giving the trees names. And after four weeks, they're, you know, pouring out their heart to the tree. And at the end of the term, we have these crazy seven week terms. At the end of the term, they're saying things like, well, I can't, you know, when I come back here next year, I'll visit my tree and I hope the pollution doesn't hurt my tree, so forth and so on. It's that depth of acquaintance, which leads to a depth of love, which can lead to a depth of care. I think beyond that, I mean, you pose a really interesting question in in the next chapter of your book, Why Does Nature Matter? Uh, You ask, how do we think about nature in a new way? Uh, And uh, I think even beyond sitting beneath beautiful trees, uh, you want this transformation of, of how we view nature to go much deeper than that. Well, you know, 
100 years ago or so, Albert Schweitzer coined the term of reverence for life. Um, Mahayana Buddhists have talked about uh, wanting to save from suffering all sentient beings. We're all alive on this fragile spaceship Earth. We're all products of the same evolutionary process. If you're a religious person, we're all a gift from God. So why not see the commonality between you and a tree? You've all, you're all, you know, trying to live, putting your energy into giving what you can to the world. The tree gives to you, you give to the tree. As you breathe out, they breathe in and vice versa. We're all together on this place, on this miracle called life. If you want to know how dependent we are on the non-human, just close your mouth and pinch your nostrils shut. And if you do that, in about 20 seconds, you'll realize that, you know, you are dependent, not just on what humans produce, but on oxygen, on air, which comes from the entire production of the ecosystem. So morally, that means love, concern, care, just like a family. I mean, what's more of a cliche than Mother Nature, right? But what else gave birth to us? but the natural world. How many countless generations of different kinds of species had to exist and go out of existence to evolve so that human beings could be brought into existence? Is that not something to be grateful for? How about the bacteria that live in our body? And if we didn't have them, we wouldn't be able to digest our food. We wouldn't be healthy. We'd probably, for the most part, we'd be dead. That's why we feel so terrible after a course of antibiotics. So don't, isn't that something to be grateful for? The sound of a bird on a spring morning. Isn't that something to be grateful for? If you're grateful for this, then how do you treat it? Do you treat it carelessly, stupidly, greedily? Do you act as if oil is some throwaway junk? Oil is an incredible gift from nature, from God, take your pick, or from both. But it's a gift, and we not only do we use too much of it, we waste huge, huge amounts of it. And on and on like that. We're speaking with Roger S. Gottlieb about his book, Morality and the Environmental Crisis. So I want to make sure that we have time to touch on this intriguing notion that you raise in the third chapter of the book about uh, trying to create something that you call ecological democracy. Right. If you think of democracy in its most stripped-down form, it's just a bunch of people voting as individuals. You go in and vote, I go in and vote, he goes in and vote, she goes in and vote, one at a time. Other people say, no, really, a real democracy involves what they call deliberation or communication. You sit around, you talk to each other, kind of town meeting kind of model of democracy. So you find out what other people have on their minds, what they care about, what they think. And if you rev that up some more, it's not just what people say, it's their emotions, how they comport themselves. Are they crying? Are they angry? What does that mean? So if democratic communication doesn't have to be verbal, then why does it have to be human? If the trees are all dying, isn't that a kind of communication? If frogs, because of pesticides, are being born with organs outside their bodies, isn't that a kind of communication? So I propose the concept of an ecological democracy, a democracy in which the voices of nature matter. Now, how you work this out in detail, you have to have representatives, but that's not unlike what we have now. If a baby is born and they don't have parents, they're going to get a representative uh, appointed, a guardian appointed for them. If somebody has Alzheimer's or other kinds of dementia, become senile, 
they have somebody representing their interests. If somebody has a very low IQ because they're born with intellectual disabilities, they have people who represent their interests. So we could have people representing the interests of the forests, of the trout, of the rivers. We realize that we're all part of, let's call it, the United States, not just the ones who walk on two legs, but the ones who walk on four legs, the ones who fly, and the ones who swim. And if we could do that, then we could get a much broader sense of what's good, not just for us as limited human beings conditioned to addictive consumerism, but as beings, living beings, part of a community, a much larger community of living beings, all of whom are dependent on non-living beings like water and air. Mm. You, uh, at, at every point in the book when you, in a sense, put forth a, a proposition or proposal, uh, you always take the time to, to, to try and address objections, which... M- might conceivably be raised or have already sure. been raised, and uh, and and you do so in in this case too, where you you say that sometimes this objection, uh, an objection to what you are suggesting here, uh, might spring from this idea of well, what is nature anyway, and isn't that right. just what we sort of think it is in the moment, and how are we even separate from nature? Aren't we part of all of this anyway? Explain what your, re- what your response is to that well, kind of objection. The, the, you know, there, there's a, this is it's somewhat technical in the realm of philosophy, but uh, there has been a movement in the last 40 years, 40, 50 years, postmodern philosophy, where they say, well, look, <clears throat> our, what we think of as nature and our beliefs about nature changes over time. Therefore, nature is nothing but a human concept. And I find this incredibly silly and verging on the stupid. I mean, certainly my understanding of my wife, I've, I've been with my wife for over 40 years, uh, my understanding of her changes over time, and certainly my understanding of her is based in who I am as a person. But that doesn't mean my wife is nothing but what I think of her. So in the same way, yes, our understanding of nature changes over time, and sometimes it gets better, and sometimes it gets worse, but nature has its own autonomous life in the world. Now, whether or not people are part of nature or not, well, in some ways we are, and in some ways we aren't. People should remember that asking whether two things are the same or different is impossible unless you specify a context, which means that, in a sense, you and I are exactly the same. We're both male human beings. Uh, in a sense, we're very different. For one thing, you live there and I live here. <laughs> in a sense, I'm the same as my daughters because we're both human beings. We're all human beings. In a sense, of course, we're different, lots of other ways. In a sense, I'm the same as, as the sun because we both exist in the same universe. And, of course, the ways in which we're different are pretty obvious. So in some ways, yes, I'm as natural as the trees I'm looking at outside my window now. We're all products of evolution. We're carbon-based life forms. We have cells. We have subatomic particles. And in other ways, we're different. And for me, the most important way in which humans are different from nature is that we are the only species on Earth, the only species on Earth of whom it can be asked, are you doing the right thing? Could, you, could this be a moral mistake? You can't ask that of a wolf or a sparrow. Only human beings live by a certain kind of cultural self-understanding. Only human beings not only have emotions, but have emotions about emotions. Your dog might be scared, but he's not ashamed about being scared, the way <laughs> typical men are ashamed about being frightened. So, yes, we're part of nature, and yes, we stand out. And the most important way which we stand out is now is... Is this the way we should be living? 
we have to ask ourselves that question. And to me, take a look at the world. The answer must be no, it's not. And then the next question is, well, can we change? Hmm. That is a big question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, right. I appre- <laughs> go, go ahead. No, I was just laughing. Yeah, it's the big question. And, you know, people ask me, well, you know, do you have any hope? And my feeling is that hope is overrated. Uh, I agree that we don't know what the future is going to bring. It could be even worse than I suspect. It could be not so bad. What I suggest to people is they don't spend a lot of emotional energy thinking about the future. We know enough about the future to know that we really do need to change what we do now. So to me, the, the principal virtue in environmental activism is not hope, but courage. Do we have the courage to act now? Do we have the courage to give love now? To go back to the Mother Nature analogy, if your own mother, God forbid, was in the hospital and the prognosis wasn't good and the nurse says, well, you better get her affairs in order, but then, of course, we can't be sure. Would you want to spend all your time thinking, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? I don't think so. I think what you'd want to do is go to her hospital room, hold her hand, sing her a song, stroke her hair, let her know she's loved. And if we can do that today with the tree outside our window and with the human beings who are also suffering terribly from what we're doing to the environment, if we can give love today, that's all we can ask of ourselves. Hmm. Speaking of love, at one point in the book, in a very intriguing chapter called Where Do We Draw the Line, Limits and Virtues, you talk for a a few minutes or a few, few moments or for a paragraph or two, I should say, about your daughter, Esther. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if you would tell our listeners why Esther is in this book and why her story matters within this wider context. Well, my daughter Esther, who's now 33, is a lovely young woman who has uh, multiple disabilities, uh, physical, uh, psychological, uh, and intellectual. Uh, she'll never live independently, but she can play adapted basketball, and she can give little talks about what it's like to live as herself, and she can sing 20 or 30 songs to people in nursing homes. So she's, she's a lovely person who has required just an unbelievable amount of care. She's, her disability is uh, undiagnosed, and she has all sorts of issues, and she's very complicated. So we're talking thousands upon thousands of hours and God knows how much money from luckily paid for by the insurance or out-of-pocket expenses to alternative care. Uh, luckily, I as a professor, my wife was a, a, a psychotherapist. We had more free time than you know, almost uh, any people who are independently wealthy. And so we're able to, to take care of her this way. And she's received a lot of help from the state and she now lives in a group home paid for by the government. So the point about Esther is that I love her and she's my daughter, but equal? If we're talking about equal rights, equal care? No. She gets a lot more than the vast, vast majority of the population. So our treatment of nature, to return to what I said earlier, is not going to be defined, I don't think, by equal rights. We're going to have our preferences. We're going to prefer one thing rather than another. We're going to devote our time to certain things rather than others. And I think that's just the way love works out. So the point is not to treat every tree and every sparrow exactly equally. The point is to live a life characterized by some kind of self-understanding, some kind of acceptance, some kind of compassion, some kind of love. And if we do that, if we mend our ways in that way, then, yes, the weeds will be pulled in the garden and the tomatoes will be allowed to grow. 
But we won't cut down whole forests to grow soybeans, to feed cattle, to make fast food hamburgers. We won't be doing that anymore. Hmm. And if we live lives of restraint and care, then our relationships with the environment and our relationships with each other, because as I said before, human beings are suffering terribly from this. And and disproportionately, there's something called environmental racism, which is the way racial minorities much more tend to live in places that are highly polluted, and they're much less likely to be cleaned up than if they were uh, white populations living there. So there is something desperately wrong here. Now, we don't want to live in a wrong way. We want to be the right type of people. We want to be the moral type of people. We want to, you know, signal our virtues to the world. And unless we change our environmental practices, there's no point. We can't be very moral. Let's finish by having you touch on the seventh chapter of the book called Changing the World, a moral primer on environmental political activism. I really appreciate uh, the blend of kind of the philosophical with the practical that we that we find uh in this chapter, and, and in particular, you call us to learn some lessons from the past, from the way some of, sometimes this fight has been fought in the past, the way in which certain organizations have, have run their affairs in, in the past. Uh, what, what do you think is most important for us to carry away when it comes to uh, trying to set about to change the world and change the path of this world? Well, you know, people ask me, what can I as an individual do? And I'd say you as an individual can join with other individuals in some kind of political, environmental political organization. Now, which organization should that be? Should it be something like the Sierra Club? Or should it be supporting uh, these young Congress people who are talking about the Green New Deal? Uh, should it be something local, uh, clean up some park or some river in the, in the town where you live? At this point, I would say, I don't know. You know, there's a sense in which there's only one really good environmental political organization. All the others are useless. Which one is that? It's the one you're willing to actually work for. Uh, which issue should it be? Should it be save the ocean, save the whales, global warming, plastic pollution? Uh, any one of them, because ultimately I believe they're all connected. I think what we have to learn from the past is, first of all, the danger of kind of needless infighting on the left. In my, some of my other books, I've done extensive study of, of left history, and there's been a lot of partisan uh, fighting about who's exactly right, and you have to have exactly the same line I do. And I say over a certain line, every environmentalist needs every other environmentalist, and we're all in this together, and we don't want to spend a lot of time arguing about who's better and who's worse. We also want to watch out for uh, overambitious, uh, ego-driven uh, arrogant leaders who have, you know, misled organizations and taken privileges for themselves in the past. If there's an analogy, well, there, there's two analogies here. One is to the women's movement, which was not centralized, unlike the union movement, which was in this country. But the women's movement was a thousand different small groups, larger groups, different kinds of issues, work within professional organizations and academic organizations, and to get people elected. And the women's movement went. No, it's the, the, the struggle is still going on, but it was able to sway and change fundamental aspects of the culture, even if there's a backlash against them now, it, it made that kind of change. So I think, the, at least for a time, the environmental movement needs to be decentralized. 
The second analogy is the Jewish resistance to the Holocaust. Uh, most people know about the dead, all the dead bodies of Jews. They don't know how many, how, how much of the time Jews fought back. And there were countless examples where Jews fought back in the ghettos, in the concentration camps, uh, with partisans in the forests. And again, these Jews didn't think they were going to win. They were just trying to keep alive something of the spirit. And one group said, well, we're not going to win. We're all going to die in this town. But at least in the future, Jews will know that we fought back, and they won't be so depressed by what happened. And there's a level on which that's the, the significance of what's going on. We must resist the juggernaut of environmental destruction. What's going to happen in the future, we don't know. We don't know. What's happening now is we can resist to save what we can save and give people in the future knowledge that, well, there were people back then who cared enough to fight back. The book, again, is Morality and the Environmental Crisis, and uh, it is published by Cambridge University Press. Professor Roger Gottlieb, thank you so much for writing this important book and for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. Best wishes. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Be well.